As I mentioned at the outset of our worship today, next Sunday marks the beginning of Advent. On the liturgical calendar, the church calendar, Advent is the mark of a new year. Not January 1st, but rather the first Sunday of Advent. And so this Sunday is the last Sunday in our current liturgical year. And as we prepare next week to set ourselves facing Bethlehem and the journey that will lead us to the babe in the manger, this week we end the liturgical year by reminding us of the same truth we will find in that manger, that Christ is and does and will always reign. And so we hear these words on this Christ the King Sunday from the Gospel of John, the 18th chapter beginning with the 33rd verse. Let us continue listening now for a word from God. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and your own chief priests, they handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus replied, saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. Ah, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then reading just one sentence further, Pilate retorts with a question. What is truth? Friends, these two are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our sermon today is titled, Christ Reigns. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we pray that your spirit might indeed reign on our hearts, that it might rain down into this space, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might speak for a fresh living of this day. Indeed, O God, we pray that your spirit might cause us to trust in the truth that you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past April, Calvary Episcopal Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee, held a very unique a very special service of worship. The events that led up to this service really were set in motion last year in 2017 when a 
member of that congregation, a man named Tim Hubner, who also happens to be a distinguished professor of history at nearby Rhodes College, decided that he would do some research on the neighborhood and the history of the neighborhood surrounding his congregation. The church had known for many years of much of its history and had known in particular that a man named Nathan Bedford Forrest, a man who had at a time been one of the wealthiest men in western Tennessee and much of the south in fact, a man who was a general in the Confederate armies, a man who would later become the first national leader of the Ku Klux Klan, had grown up in a small house right on the edge of the church's property. What they didn't know until Hubner began his research was that later in his life, Nathan Bedford Forrest had made much of his money by operating one of the largest slave yards in all of Memphis on the ground that now rests underneath the church's parking lot. A pastor named Reverend Dorothy Sanders Wells is the rector of Episcopal Church in the nearby community of Germantown, Tennessee. She worshipped at Calvary Episcopal while a student in college. An African-American, she knew during that time that it was a church that had been built by slaves. But still, she says, learning the proximity of that slave yard to this church was eye-opening in a different way. There was just something different, she says, about a revelation that worshipers were coming to this church week after week after week with that slave auction house sitting right in the shadows and seeing that. Worshiping on Sunday and coming back on Monday, she continued to transact their business to purchase children of God who happened to look like me. For many years, there's been a historic marker marking that spot of Nathan Bedford Forrest's childhood home, but there had never been a marker to mark the business and the lives that had been moved through that slave yard in the church's very parking lot. And so, with Tim Hubner's help and the help of several of his students, the church partnered with the National Park Service to commission a new historic marker that would go on their property and would include the names of 74 individuals, men, women, children. Undoubtedly, there were hundreds more, but from lists found in the Shelby County archives of bills of sale, they assembled a list of 74 names that had been sold on that site. And so this past April, the church gathered together to conduct a worship service to dedicate this new historic marker. And as part of that worship service, Tim Hubner stepped into the pulpit and began to read the names. Washington age 20, 
Catherine, age 23. He would say later that as his eyes were directed down, he didn't see it happen, but he heard it. A sanctuary that seats 600 people filled to overflow capacity. He heard as one by one those who were able stood. They stood out of respect for the memory, but perhaps more importantly to mark the dignity of those human lives that had been treated in such an undignified way. They stood as he continued reading. Sarah, age 17. Paige, age 9. John Henry, age six. Mary Ann, age three. Today is Reign of Christ Sunday. It is a day when we, us, are called to name who and what it is we stand for. It's appropriate then that we are given this story from the end of John's gospel, the story of Jesus on his way to Calvary, albeit a different Calvary than the one in downtown Memphis. And along the way, he meets this man named Pilate, Scholars sometimes break down this 18th and 19th chapters of John's gospel into seven scenes, seven scenes of Jesus on trial. The first scene happens right before our reading when the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. They have charged him with crimes, although interestingly they never name what those crimes are, and they want Pilate to execute Jesus. Execution is not allowed in their laws, but Pilate and the Roman authorities, they can get the job done. We meet Pilate then in this second scene of Jesus' trial where he comes in from listening to this angry crowd of Jewish leaders and he confronts Jesus. And as he does that, we can almost hear the calculations running through his head. Pilate, I don't think, wants Jesus' blood on his hands. Over the course of these chapters, he tries to give Jesus back. But even more, Pilate does not want to lose power. He does not want to lose control. He is running the calculations in his head. If he refuses to execute this Jesus, just how much trouble could those good religious leaders whip up? He's running calculations of what would it look like back in Rome if word reaches them of some uprising because I was not willing to do what they wanted me to do. And so he asked Jesus that question, are you the king of the Jews? To be clear, I don't think Pilate really cares much what kinghood Jesus claims. I think he's searching for a technicality here. 
he and Jesus alike, they can hear those angry voices just outside the open windows. And he has, Pilate has become trapped by that most powerful of human emotions, fear. Pilate wants Jesus to just stumble a little, to just claim any authority that flies in the face of Rome's authority so he can do what it is he can do. And the story plays out, and it becomes clear over the course of Jesus' trial that Pilate, he will stand. But he will stand for those things that are not of Jesus that are not of God's kingdom. Pilate will stand for things like self-preservation, self-promotion, self-importance, selfishness. Pilate will stand for earthly power over otherworldly grace. He will stand for who he is, Pilate, rather than whose he is. Pilate will stand in this story for security over justice, for appeasement over courage, for fear over love. Pilate will ultimately stand for fiction, the fiction of the world, over truth, the truth right in front of him. Friends, how often do we stand for the very same things? Caroline Lewis is a homiletician, a preacher, a professor at Luther Seminary in Minnesota. She writes on these verses from John's Gospel about Jesus' kingdom, and she says, Jesus' kingdom is not a domain. Rather, she says, Jesus' kingdom is a determined mode of being. I like that. We're all so conditioned to think about kingdoms in in physical terms, as physical territory, to think about kingdom in words like crown and carriage and crest. We think about kingdoms in the sense of royal weddings and military parades and powerful people. We think of kingdoms as being defined by borders and rules and regulations and expectations. And it makes sense why we think about kingdoms like that, because it's safer. It's more secure. It's easier if we have everything laid out for us. I think we like it better, too, because we can take a vacation from one kingdom to the other. I'm looking forward to a trip to the Holy Land next summer, and part of that meant I had to check my passport and make sure it wouldn't expire. I did that this past week, and it reminded me of this incredible freedom, this gift that so many of us enjoy, this ability to get on an airplane and just skip over to a different place to a different kingdom. We like kingdoms as being physical territory and domains because it means we can take a break from them every once in a while. We can focus on career advancement and political agendas and personal comfort. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is a determined mode of being. It's a life that chooses 
others over self. Chooses not just family and friends over self, but also and perhaps even more so chooses the stranger over ourselves. It strikes me how throughout the Gospels, almost every single person Jesus encounters, not a family member, not a friend, but someone who until that moment is and otherwise would have remained a complete and utter stranger to history. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' kingdom is this life that refuses to be rooted in and to live from the fear upon which so much earthly power is held up. The fear that inevitably leads to hate in all of its different manifestations. Hate in the form of racism and sexism and classism. Hate in the form of all those phobias, homophobia, Islamophobia, xenophobia, and on and on and on. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It is this kingdom that calls us to recognize that our primary citizenship is not any nation, but rather to that kingdom, that place in which hope and love and faith abide. Jesus' kingdom is an insistence on showing others that Christ reigns in you and me and all of us by standing for and telling the truth. And what is the truth, Pilate asks? If only he had stayed just a moment longer rather than stepping out of that room, maybe he would have heard the answer. What is the truth? The truth, according to John's gospel, is that God so loved the world. That God so loves the world. See, friends, Memphis... Memphis isn't the only place where people's lives are and continue to be paved over. First century Palestine, it's not the only place and the only time that a pilot has ruled. Our world, this this world, it is still full of hate, of hurt, of injustice. But the good news of Christ the King Sunday The good news is that God still loves the world. The good news is that Christ still reigns. And so, beloved, I had a professor who was an Episcopal priest. I like to say friends. He would address his congregation every Sunday from the pulpit as beloved. Beloved. People with names like those read from that list this past April. Names like John Henry and Washington and Catherine and Sarah and Paige and Mary Ann. People with names like those who climbed into that pulpit at Calvary Episcopal to read those names like Tim and Dorothy. People with names like yours and mine. 
And yes, even people with names that history remembers for all the wrong reasons, people with names like Nathan and Pilate. Hear again that good news of Christ the King Sunday. God still loves the world. Christ still reigns. Beloved, this day, every day, stand for and stand on that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.